Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark's Gospel. I'm turning to Mark chapter 15 and verses, and at verse 42. Mark 15 at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. There are uh, times where the situation is particularly difficult or painful or awkward, where it calls for someone to intervene and to address the situation rightly. Uh, I remember seeing a video online uh, a while back, and it was uh, a woman that was getting married, and she had hoped to uh, have a dance with her father at her wedding. Her father was sick uh, and was terminal, uh, but before the wedding day, her father passed. And so on the wedding day, uh, when the time came at the reception for a dance, uh, there was an awkward situation that had developed uh, where it was a, a reminder to her that she had lost her father. And on a day when she's supposed to be happy and joyful, she was having that mixed feeling of sorrow over the loss that she had. But in that situation, her brothers uh, responded to it. Her brothers uh, had decided that they would step in and that during the father-daughter dance, that they would take the place of their father and that intermittently they would each take a turn dancing with their sister. It was a way of trying to express love uh, in a situation where they were uh, faced with sorrow. They tried to address the situation in the best way that they could. They couldn't fix the situation. They couldn't bring back uh, their father. But they could at least try to respond to the situation the best way that they knew how. And so they tried to express that love uh, to their sister. This morning, we are turning to uh, an awkward or a painful, a difficult situation in Mark's gospel. You remember that Jesus had been crucified. He had been condemned, uh, he had been uh, uh, scourged, and then he had been put on a cross where he was not only in painful agony, but where he was being mocked by those who passed by. And when all of this happened, Jesus ultimately cried out with a loud voice, and it tells us that he breathed his last. And those standing by, including a Roman centurion, uh, responded to that reaction 
that centurion said, truly, this was the son of God. That something got through to that centurion, that this was no ordinary death. And this was no ordinary man in the way that he related uh, to his God. And so there was something profoundly happening here, uh, a situation that was very painful, uh, uh, very uh, tense. And yet it also required a certain response as well. And this morning we want to see how one individual responded to that very awkward situation. We want to look at how Joseph uh, ultimately responds and addresses it in the best way that he knows how. We're looking at the burial of Jesus. But we want to look at the burial of Jesus uh, in order to see that because Jesus uh, was buried, we should see his death in light of God's unfolding work of salvation. That even his burial teaches us something about Jesus and his saving work. We want to think about these verses in two thoughts. We want to think about the statement of Jesus' burial. And then secondly, we want to think about the significance of Jesus' burial. First, we have the the statement itself. Uh, It tells us there in verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also looking for the kingdom of God himself, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, From a Jewish standpoint, the burial of those who had died was a very important aspect of Jewish piety. Um, Actually, when you look in the Old Testament, it tells us about the burial of many people uh, because it was a way of honoring those uh, who were made in the image of God. It was a way of expressing closure. It was a way of respecting the dead. And as you read the Old Testament, there's only a a few individuals that are given the... the, uh, (coughs) the process of not being buried. For a Jew, it was, it was looked at as a great misfortune to not be given the dignity of a burial. And so when you look in the Old Testament, there's only really a few people that fit that category. Uh, there was the rebellious Jehoiakim, uh, and there was also uh, the wicked Jezebel, uh, who are noted for not being buried, uh, that they were denied that dignity or that honor. But for the Jew, it was, it was vitally important to show respect uh, to those image bearers, to those who are a part of the covenant community of God, to those who are made in the image of God. But the burial here uh, is even more significant than that. Because in the Old Covenant, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us that if any man committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The tree, uh, the post, the wooden post, or the cross, if someone was to be crucified or hanged on a tree, they were viewed as being cursed by God. God's Condemnation was on them. But that same passage goes on to say that they were to take the bodies down lest God's condemnation of judgment is over the land. In other words, so that it's not restricted to one, but rather that it would not spread or that they would not all be liable to God's wrath. 
And so the people of God had this understanding that we, we were not to leave uh, the bodies of those who had been hanged, those who had been cursed. They were to be taken down. So Jewish piety, Jewish anyone who was a faithful believer in the Old Covenant would recognize that you are not to leave someone who is hanging up. You are to take their body down, lest we incur God's wrath as a result, that the land would be defiled or polluted as a result. So there's, there's an impetus, there's a, an impulse from the Jewish perspective that would say we should take his body down. And uh, that's what we see happening here. Uh, they, there is a desire uh, to take the body of Jesus down. But from a Roman perspective, uh, we've highlighted before that the whole point of the crucifixion is to get a message across. It is to instill fear in those who would want to associate with this kind of activity. It, it was meant to instill fear not to mess with Rome and the power of Rome. And the best way to get that message across, the maximum way to get that message across, is to let the bodies hang for days. To, to extend the duration of how long they are up on that cross. And so you can see from a, a Roman perspective why there would be a reluctance to bother taking the body of Jesus down. But we're told that this one man, uh, Joseph, takes the steps, uh, in, uh, uh, the steps to address the situation in the best way that he could. We're told several things about this individual. Uh, we're told that he is uh, of Arimathea. Uh, most likely it is a place that was about 20 miles from Jerusalem. So he's a man from out of town. Uh, but he is described more than just by his location, but as a member of the council. Referring there to the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was part of that religious body that had authority over the land of Judea. He was an esteemed or a respected member of that council. That doesn't mean that he was part of the decision-making that condemned Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it tells us explicitly that he wasn't. Uh, he did not uh, vote against Jesus. And most likely, he wasn't even there. Uh, being uh, from out of town, he may not have even been present at those early hours. But he's also described as a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. Every sincere believer in the Old Testament was looking for the kingdom of God. They were taught from their childhood to pray for the kingdom of God to come. They were looking, in other words, for the promises of God to be fulfilled. But by saying that, what it's highlighting about Joseph is, is that this Joseph was a sincere believer. He wasn't just one of those people that fell under the name of, of an Israelite. He wasn't just someone who was part of the community who had a place, a position in the community. But he was a sincere believer. There was an integrity to his faith. He genuinely was looking for God's promises to be fulfilled. And so he is highlighted here in a way that gives him distinction uh, by his sincerity and the integrity of his faith. But throughout Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God, the mentioning of the kingdom of God, has always been wrapped up in Jesus. And it's as if Mark is here hinting at the fact that Joseph was inclined in this way, something that the other gospel writers make explicit. Matthew tells us that, that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. And John says that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. 
again, he's part of a, 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 a group that are decidedly against Jesus. And so there is a place in which Joseph is affirming things about Jesus, but doing so quietly. He's not drawing attention to anything. He's not rippling the waters, as it were. But he is one who is secretly following Jesus. Uh, and so he is described as one who was looking for the kingdom of God. But the last thing that is said about him is, is that he was someone who took courage. What does it mean to take courage? Courage is to do hard things even when we're afraid. You young people, sometimes it can take a lot of courage to tell the truth because you don't know where it's going to lead to. It can take a lot of courage to stand up to a bully and to tell them to stop picking on someone else. It can, it can take courage to act in uh, a certain way because you're afraid of what might come of it. But courage comes when you're living in light of conviction. I know you shouldn't pick on someone. And so I'm going to say, stop it. I'm, I'm going to tell the truth because I believe the truth is important. There's a conviction that allows a person to act with courage, to do things even when they're afraid. Here, Joseph is described as taking courage. Why was he described as a courageous man? Well, he was courageous because when he went to Pilate, he had no reason to think that Pilate was going to grant that. He had no guarantee of what was going to be the result. In other words, he could be rejected uh, when he comes to him. But more than that, he took it took courage for Joseph to go to Pilate because he was acting independent. Or better, he was acting contrary to the council. The council has just condemned this man. His own group of brothers, as it were, have all rejected Jesus. And now what Joseph is about to do is something that will not be kept secret. He will be known for his actions. When he steps out, it is not something that will be buried. They will know that it was him that went to ask for Jesus' body. He doesn't know what the consequences of this action will be. There may be negative consequences, hostility from his own peers for acting in this way. But Joseph is convicted that he should not be on the tree. Jesus must be taken down. The body of Jesus should not be there. The scriptures should be honored. And so Joseph goes to Pilate asking for the body of Jesus to be taken down. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. As we mentioned before, crucifixions could extend from hours even to days. And so Pilate is someone who's not going to make a mistake here. He wants to make sure that Jesus truly is dead. And so he asks the, the centurion whether this is true or not. And the centurion affirms that he has died. And then Pilate grants the request. He gives the body of Jesus to Joseph. Why does he do that? We could give all kinds of reasons. We could highlight the fact that maybe Pilate was sensitive uh, to the Jewish sensibilities. There's no point provoking more animosity. 
they did uh, give permission at other times for people to remove bodies. Uh, so there is something of a, a tolerance being extended, perhaps. But we can go even further than that because it seems to reinforce the idea that Pilate did not truly believe that Jesus was guilty. Um, there's no message that needs to be effectively extended to deter people, that he didn't really think that the message of saying this is your crucified king is something that needs to be extended any further. But more than that, we can ultimately say that Pilate granted that request because as the book of Proverbs teaches, the hearts of the kings are turned by the will of God. And so in this situation, Pilate grants that request and the body is granted to Joseph. So there is a statement that he is going to be buried. Uh, he's not simply left. He's not simply discarded. But he is going to be given a fitting closure. He is going to be given an honorable burial. In verses 46 and 47, it tells us that Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. That Joseph here is going to bury uh, Jesus, uh, but he is going to do so with haste. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it tells us that it was about 3 p.m. when he did so. Uh, if Jesus died shortly after that, uh, then really you have a matter of hours before sunset, before the day of Sabbath begins, uh, before rest is now established. And so everything he's doing here is rushed. There won't be a time for the proper burial process. Everything has to be expedited. Uh, and uh, Joseph isn't acting alone here, as it says elsewhere, that there is a plurality of those that are involved in this whole process. But it is with haste, uh, and it is ultimately out of reverence. The wrapping of Jesus in that shroud was an attempt at showing reverence to the body of Jesus in the burial procedure. And we're told that he was laid in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Uh, unlike what we think of when we think of a burial where a person's body is descended into the, the earth below. In the Jewish practice, they would uh, place the body in a tomb that was cut out of the, the hillside of Palestine, that the tombs were something you walked into. And then in the tomb, it was a, a vault of about six by nine feet. And then on the side were the shelves or shelf-like niches where the bodies would be placed. And so Joseph seeks to honor Jesus by placing him in uh, a very expensive tomb, one that had not been used, and one that is enclosed with a stone. Uh, and all of that is done out of reverence. It was a tomb that in John's gospel is said to have been nearby the crucifixion. But all of this is happening because Joseph is trying to say, this is not right, but we have to respond the best we can. And so he is trying to honor the deceased. He is trying to honor the one who has died, however he finds fitting. And so he gives him a proper burial. So there is the statement. But what is, what is the significance of this? Why highlight this? Why does Mark highlight the burial of Jesus? He does so for three reasons at least. First, he does so as 
to testify the reality that Jesus truly did die. That when Jesus was crucified and he breathed his last, Mark is establishing the certainty that Jesus truly did die. Some have uh, tried to wiggle their way around this idea of Jesus dying. And some have always tried to come up with theories of perhaps Jesus didn't die. Uh, Maybe he only fell unconscious and then later revived and was able to carry on. And that's why people saw him later on. The appearances of Jesus were because he simply had went unconscious, but he never ultimately died. It's known as the swoon theory, uh, but it's full of problems and holes uh, that lacks credibility. Uh, One, it lacks credibility because it doesn't really take seriously the flogging that Jesus would have experienced. The fact, the amount of blood loss that Jesus would have endured, the, the absolute exhaustion that Jesus would have experienced from the crucifixion, he wouldn't have had even the strength to move about afterwards. Uh, so it doesn't really take into consideration the, the reality of his own experience. It also doesn't take into account the reality of what the Gospels say about Jesus' crucifixion. You remember in John's Gospel, it tells us that they were going to break the knees of the criminals that were being crucified to hasten their death. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And then one of the soldiers, to confirm that Jesus was dead, speared him in the side. And we have to realize that when he does that, it's not just a poke. Because it says that when he did it, outflowed blood and water. And that was really to signify something that what had happened to Jesus, confirming his death. As one medical authority uh, explains, Dr. Alexander Metherill, that when the soldier speared Jesus in the side, we have to remember this is a soldier who is trained to kill, to know the difference between living and dead, because his own life depends on it. But more than that, when he spears him in the side, Dr. Methrell says, the spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart so that when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, pericardial effusion, and the pleural effusion came out. This would have had the appearance of a clear fluid, like water, followed by a large volume of blood. So when John is standing there at the cross witnessing these things, And he says, outflowed blood and water, what looked like blood and water. This doctor is saying that's really the effect of being stabbed through the heart. That this is a certainty of Jesus had died. And so all of this is really trying to underscore the fact that uh, even the burial here is another confirmation that Jesus is truly dead. You have the fact that he has gone through all this physical suffering. You have the fact that he was speared in the side. You have the fact that even the centurion who is under testimony before the prefect of Rome, that he has affirmed that this man is dead. His own life is on the line if he's wrong. He has confirmed that Jesus is dead. You have the fact that there are multiple people there witnessing these events, all accepting that he is dead. You have the fact that there is a plural of people who are handling the body of Jesus from the cross and then entomb him. He is most certainly dead. No one is questioning there at the cross whether Jesus is dead or not, which shows that the swoon theory has no credibility to it. It is really a desperate attempt of evading the fact that Jesus died. So it it underscores the fact uh, that Jesus truly did die. 
But it's also important for another reason, and it goes back to Joseph. Uh, We are told that Joseph laid Jesus in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Elsewhere, we are told that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And that's significant because of what we were reading about in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, it describes the servant of the Lord uh, in this way. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked. His point of death was surrounded by the unrighteous, by wicked criminals. But his, his entombment, his grave, his uh, 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 death is with a rich man. Because, it says in Isaiah, because... He had done no violence. That's the twist in Isaiah. The wicked who die with the wicked will be treated like the wicked. But here in Isaiah, it says the servant of the Lord will be surrounded by the wicked, but he'll be treated with honor by the rich. His, his grave, his entombment will be with a rich Uh, by the rich. And so it is highlighting here that it involves not only wicked people, but a rich man. And it is all happening because he had done no violence. So the burial of Jesus provides one final illusion that Jesus is the servant of the Lord, that Jesus is the one that Isaiah is talking about. He fulfills the prophecies of scripture, not only in his life, but even in his death. These things are being fulfilled about him as well. And so it is really meant to help us to look at Jesus' death by way of the scriptures. So it's not just saying, did Jesus die? But to see that why Jesus died is explained to us in the Old Testament itself. As it's said there in Isaiah, that out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. He will bear their sins. Jesus died on the cross because that's the end of sin. That's where sin leads. But he died on the cross because he is paying the wages of sin in order to give the gift of eternal life. Jesus died, but his death had meaning to it. He was the one that the Lord willed to crush in order to make many righteous. And so he is paying the penalty of sin as the sin bearer. And so as we think about the burial of Jesus, we're once again faced with the the reality of how we think about uh, his own experience. Are we looking at it in light of the scriptures themselves? Do we see the mounting of evidence that reinforces not only the identity of Jesus, but also his work? What it was that his mission was all about. When we rightly identify him, then it explains why he experienced what he experienced. And it confronts us with the reality of sin and of ourselves as sinners. Do we recognize ourselves as guilty before God, as in need of a savior? Or do we persuade ourselves that there is no concern? 
The scriptures teach us that the good news is, is that Jesus suffered the wrath of God in the place of sinners. That when he says it is finished, he's not just talking about his life, but his work of atoning for sin. Sins have been dealt with and the wrath of God has been turned aside in full because it has been addressed on the Son. None of us likes to think about the reality of death or of being buried even. But as one uh, Anglican, John Charles Ryle, once said, the one thing that can bring comfort to believers is the fact that the grave is the place where the Lord once lay. As surely as he rose again victorious from the tomb, so surely shall all who believe in him rise gloriously in the day of his appearing. In the, in the burial, then, Jesus is giving a fitting honor by this rich man. But it testifies to who he is. So we have the, the statement of the burial of Jesus. He's buried by Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he is buried because Joseph took courage. Uh, he is buried in haste, out of reverence. But then there's also the meaning. The meaning is, is that it testifies that he truly did die. It testifies to who he is as the servant of the Lord promised in Isaiah. But then it also testifies to his worth. When Joseph approached Pilate, he did so because he was a disciple of Jesus. But it said he took courage to do that because he was risking his reputation. He was risking his place in the community in doing that. The council had just condemned Jesus, but Joseph saw it as necessary to honor Jesus in his death. And so he made his stand because he had convictions. He trusted in God's word, but he also trusted in Jesus. And so come what may, he was willing to approach Pilate and to suffer the consequences. You may be sitting here this morning as someone who can identify with Joseph. Someone who is inclined towards Jesus, but wants to keep it all secret. Not to make it a big hullabaloo. Not to let other people know, but to be more of a secret disciple. But what will happen is, is eventually it will come to a crux. There will come a point where you must make a choice. You will have to choose whether or not you are basing your life on the conviction about God's word being true. A conviction about whether Jesus is credible as Lord. Or whether you will be controlled by your situation and by the consequences of your actions. Christians are those who are to be able to stand for what they believe to be true. And not to live in fear. We are to be people of conviction. And so we are called to live in light of the situations we find ourselves in. Joseph was in a very difficult, painful, awkward situation. He had just seen the one who he thought was the Messiah die. And yet he responded by saying, nevertheless, my stand is still with him. But we can find ourselves in very difficult and painful situations too. When family dynamics are disrupted, by the th choices we make, when our beliefs are no longer in the majority or accepted, we're still going to be forced to make a choice. 
What do we believe? What will we stand for? And how will we respond? Are we people that are living in light of God's word, trusting it as our basis of authority? And only then can we be people who live with courage, trusting in the Lord's will to be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about Joseph, that it would be something that encourages us, knowing that we are all people that would rather uh, stay uh, under the radar and not disrupt or disturb others. But we pray, Lord, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would not be ashamed of the power of God, of the work of Christ's sacrifice, of the reality of the judgment to come against sin, but also uh, of the grace of God revealed uh, towards sinners. So we ask that you would bless us and keep us, that you would direct us by your spirit, and that you would be given the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.